the good news is we we live in a time when we actually have the tools with which to fight back. We, you know, in another time, we wouldn't have the techno- technological capacities that we have now. We, we, ha- we are the masters of our own fate here. And we need to, um, we need to excite and en- enlist people in a great global mobilization and, gl- and individually in great national mobilizations. What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. As the former Chief Strategist and Senior Advisor to President Obama, my guest this week has been at the heart of some of the most consequential global decisions in the last two decades. David Axelrod will be the first to admit that he is not an expert on the science of the climate but he is an expert on the political system within which we make the decisions about what to do in response to the science. One of the most striking things about the Obama administration, particularly when compared to the polarization that has come to characterize US politics since he left office, is his approach to consensus building. Throughout his time in the White House, Obama was constantly reaching across the aisle on the search for consensus. He won in 2008 on a platform of bipartisanship and rising above the day-to-day political divisions to address some of the biggest issues facing the country. But the downside of that approach, especially when it's so central to your philosophy of governing, is that it effectively gives your opposition a veto over what you want to do. The promise of bipartisanship can be turned in upon itself to force concessions, which can then lead, counterintuitively, to partisanship. As the chief strategist behind this approach, I talked with David about how it relates to climate change, particularly the tension between needing consensus on the one hand and the need for bold action on the other. We also talked about the transition to a low-carbon economy and the importance of bringing everyone with us. Obama himself has said that his administration did not adapt quickly enough to the fact that there were people being left behind and that frustrations were going to flare up. This is something that we will all need to be aware of. David Axelrod has produced media strategy and advertising for 150 campaigns across the US, which of course culminated in President Obama's two historic elections. In 2011, David left his position in the White House to be the senior strategist for Obama's successful re-election campaign in 2012. Following a second successful campaign, David established a bipartisan Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where he now serves as director. He is the host of The Axe Files, a top-rated podcast featuring in-depth conversations with public figures across the political spectrum. David is also the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with David Axelrod. David Axelrod, thank you so much for joining me on What Comes After, What Comes Next. Uh, And, you know, if you listen to the 
name of the podcast, you've been engaged in, you know, in particular in the Obama administration, but not only uh, dealing with issues of the day, but also uh, having to think through many of the kind of consequences of the consequences uh, of of the th- of the things that we do in the current moment. Um, how would you characterize where things are at? Right now, I and mean, there's obviously been a tectonic shift in the U.S. in the last few months. But how how do you think that that's sort of having material effect in the U.S. and around the world? Well, in terms of climate or the overall? Well, let's start there. But uh, you know, I, I, these things are interrelated. They are. Well, obviously, we've had we've had, as you've mentioned, a tectonic shift in the U.S. since January twentieth. Uh, you know, you could not find two people uh, more opposite uh, than uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, both in terms of uh, style um, and temperament and and uh, and also in uh, a, approach to uh, issues in the world. Uh, and so, for example, this week, uh, uh, President Biden is going to be convening a a virtual climate summit with leaders from around the world, um, and uh, you know that would that would have been mocked by Donald Trump, who neither believed in the climate issue uh, or, or in uh, alliances, um, and of course famously withdrew us from the pa- Paris Accord. So, um, uh, so that is just one small example, but. Uh, in terms of tone and substance, uh, we are an entirely different place. And what that means for the world, I think, is, is as the president said, you know, America's uh, uh, open for business again. And, and that means the business of diplomacy, the business of business, um, and, uh, and, and all other things, diplom- uh, all other things. So, um, you know, it, it, I think... The Biden administration recognizes that America has a lot of work to do because a lot of relationships were sundered uh, during these past four years. And, you know, the question remains, um, you know, can America's can America be trusted to 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 stay the course if commitments are made during these four years? And that is going to be a case that the Biden Biden uh, team is going to have to make uh and he's going to have to make, and that he, I'm sure, will make in this summit o- over the next few days. But uh, certainly, we're in a much different place than we were three months ago. I'm glad you raised that because that that was kind of my view of things. I, I've been very pleasantly surprised to hear President Biden say some of the things that he said. Uh, the um, that massive multi-trillion-dollar uh, jobs plan, you know, had a very strong uh, climate transition focus, which was mm-hmm. great, um, but of course the the I guess the skepticism from outside the U.S. is because of the nature of the political system there uh, that you know anything that one administration does seems to be very easily undone by a subsequent administration, um, and so you know we saw. Uh, you know, President Obama's leadership working with the Chinese to get the Paris Agreement over the line, you know, that was great. That kind of got us to the start line, but then the next administration unwound that. Now the new administration is unwinding their unwinding. Yeah. How, how, do we, how do we get some kind of stability uh, in, in, in the system there? Well, look, I mean, this is a challenge for democracies generally. 
James. I'm, you know, um, uh, people elect leaders and leaders can change direction. We're a, de- we're, we're a closely divided country politically. You know, Joe Biden won. Uh, it's hard for others who don't who aren't familiar with our system to uh, to appreciate. Joe Biden won by seven million votes, which seems like a lot more than the population of New Zealand. But uh, in reality, because of the way we elect presidents, which is by state, each state getting a certain number of what were called electoral votes, uh, you know, he really won by a margin more like 44,000 votes. And if uh, those 44,000 votes in three states had gone the other way, Donald Trump could be sitting in the White House today. Um, and so that tells you, you know, that we are a, a, a closely divided country. And um, and we, we may be for the foreseeable future. I think in terms of the issue of climate, the hope is that uh, you can lock some things in that are hard to unwind. And you can make investments uh, that will uh, begin to pay dividends uh, quickly relative to uh, investments like uh, uh, electric vehicles, for example, or uh, setting up, I think their plan calls for a half a million charging stations around the country. I mean, those things can happen and happen uh, relatively quickly and um, uh, or begin to happen relatively quickly. And these things take on a momentum and that's what you have to hope for. Um, You know, if you're a Democrat, you hope for uh, continued wisdom on the part of the American people. But um, but the reality is we're a democratic system and we're closely divided and things can change. So you want to lock in as much as you can, as quickly as you can. And it seems to me that's what uh, the Biden administration is doing. Can I ask you about um, the tension between the need to build consensus on the one hand and the need to for bold action on, on the other, uh, with this particularly prevalent in the debate around climate change policy? And, you know, you had some very up close uh, encounters with this as part of the Obama administration where, you know, it was uh, obvious uh, to those of us on the outside that um, President Obama was a, uh, you know, a consensus politician. He was trying to, to the maximum extent possible, reach across the aisle, but that essentially handed a veto exactly. uh, to the other yeah. side. Uh, and, 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 you know, when it comes to climate change policy, we're sort of up against a clock. Yes. Uh, how do you how do you reconcile those two positions? Well, I mean, it's even more complicated than that because um, uh, you're quite right. If if you make bipartisanship the sine qua non of your administration, you hand a veto to the other side, and that's what happened with Obama. He won on a platform of of, of rising above uh, partisan divisions to deal with big problems facing the country. The other side recognized that since that was a major commitment of his, that if they could thwart his ability to work on a bipartisan basis and then blame him for it and force him to work on a partisan basis, uh, uh, that uh, that you they could help erode some of his political capital. And um, so the incentives were misaligned. Uh, it is, you know, on, is- on issues like cl- um, uh, health care reform, uh, he wound up doing it almost entirely with uh, with democratic votes but the the complication is our system, the United States Senate uh, requires uh, 
you know, a supermajority of 60 uh, to, to really accomplish anything because uh, there is the minority has the, the right under the rules to uh, block uh, anything that doesn't get 60 votes out of the 100 in the Senate. There are only 50 Democrats in the Senate. So if you want to pass something, you've got to pass it with 100 or through this, you know, through procedural maneuvers that would uh, allow you to pass it with 50 plus the vote of the vice president who presides. I'm getting into the weeds, but here's the point. Among those 50 are not, there, there's not unanimity among all Democrats about what to do on issues like climate. The, the very, very powerful uh, chairman of the Senate committee that uh, presides over this, Joe Manchin, comes from West Virginia, which is a traditionally a coal state. Uh, I mean, that, 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 that was uh, historically a big part of their economy. Um, you know, he has uh, some different priorities uh, on, on this issue. So uh, even, if you had f- even if you could do everything you wanted to do with 50 votes— uh, you need to get all of your Democrats uh, on board. And I think it, it, it speaks to a larger uh, problem, James, which is, and you know, we were talking about democracy uh, before. In democracies, um, it, it is very, very hard generally to get uh, big things done that have payout, payouts in the future, um, you know, our healthcare bill, you know, in the, in the near term was politically damaging to us uh, because it, the payouts from the, the benefits of that health care bill wouldn't be evident as quickly uh, as, as we needed in the subsequent election. Uh, and so politicians, most, for most of them, you know, self-preservation is the, the first order of business. And there's risk associated with asking people to make sacrifice in the short term for important goals in the long term. And that's really what's been uh, so difficult about the climate issue. I mean, climate change, we're seeing more evidence of it every day. Uh, and you do see, you know, some attitudes shifting. I mean, we've had terrible wildfires in the West, as you're aware of. Uh, we've had terrible flooding elsewhere uh, and very extreme weather events that come more rapidly uh, all the time. And yet, uh, for people who um, live in places where energy is extracted from the ground, and that's how they support themselves, and that's how their communities support themselves, uh, or industries rely on uh, on fossil fuels, um, there there is a resistance to uh, change that that people in those areas feel are economically threatening. And the opponents uh, also, uh, uh, you know, Brand, why, uh, their, their question is, why should we make economic sacrifices uh, when, you know, the Chinese are, uh, you know, twice as, as, as guilty as, or almost twice as guilty as, uh, as, as us uh, as emitters, uh, and they're not, they're not, doing their share or, or India's not doing its share. Um, so, um, you know, these are the arguments that swirl around. Getting people focused on the severity of the threat and the need to change is, is tough. 
And, you know, I think we tried and Biden certainly is speaking all the time about the economic benefits of being on the cutting edge of this change that we have to make uh, and trying to persuade folks that uh, if we are on the cutting edge of, of green technology, uh, that uh, th there would be enormous benefits to this. But, you know, there's an old expression here, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Uh, and I think a lot of people are, you know, they're skeptical. And they're skeptical of whether the jobs that are created will be for the people who lost the jobs in the exchange. Mm. So the politics of this has been complicated for a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the president is doing a yeoman job of, of, of selling the importance of this. I think the next two days will be a part of that. Um, but it's still a political chore. I mean, I am asking you about the U.S., but I'm self-interested uh, because all, all of the things that you've just described play out here as well. You know, we have yes. a, a small coal mining uh, industry on the West Coast um, yeah. who are obviously deeply resistant. Many of those are multi-generation yes. miners. Yes. And they don't want to be told to be baristas in exactly. a tourist coffee shop. That is 100%, shop, you, know? you know, and and, and, and I think that it lands very badly when, you know, you, you talk about retraining um, or in, in our country, James, uh, you know, um, what you hear a lot from uh, people who make their living, you know, mining coal or, or, or drilling for oil or whatever, uh, that they have good union jobs that pay very well. And so when you say, well, you can install uh, you can install uh, solar panels. They say, yeah, but or, or build wind turbines. They say, well, the, those jobs don't pay what our jobs pay. And that may be part of the solution, by the way, is to try and uh, ensure that those jobs do pay uh, well. But I know you also have a lot of sheep there, too. That's part of the problem, <laughs> too, don't you? Well, uh, yeah, less sheep and more cows, uh -huh. uh, actually, as uh, the, the last 30 years has has demonstrated. Actually, one of the things that interested me about uh, something that President Biden said, I can't remember if it was on the campaign trail or after the election, you know, he, he talked about, uh, which a lot of countries are now talking about, getting the US to net zero by 2050. But one of the ancillary things that he said was he wanted the US to have the first uh, um kind of carbon neutral agricultural sector. He, he wanted the US agriculture to kind of get there before anybody else. Now, uh, you know, I know people in the New Zealand agriculture sector who would like say, great, bring it on. Yes. <laughs> like, a bit of, like a bit of competition there. Um, but uh, that's the first time that I've actually heard, not just in the US, but actually in most other countries, uh, some of the attention going on, on to agriculture because here it's, something of a national obsession. Yeah. Listen, I remember uh, some years ago, uh, some forward thinking people were talking about this in the methane issue and uh, negative political ads were cut by their opponents, uh, uh, you know, with, um, uh, you know, mocking the idea of capturing uh, uh capturing these emissions from cows. Uh, and, you know, it was a source of great fun and, and ridicule. Um, so, uh, you know, we've, we've made progress when a president is talking about 
uh, about this. But these are these are complicated issues. It was reported today, by the way, that the president is going to up his uh, goal or our national goal uh, at this summit uh, from uh, uh, 30 percent reduction under 2005 levels to 50 percent, which is a big, big commitment. Uh, and I think part of it is meant to to uh, uh, to signal our seriousness and to challenge others to 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 meet it. Um, and uh, so we'll see. But so you know, I think he has everything's on the table here. Uh, every every element of uh, emissions is going to be looked at and approached. Which I. I- I'm personally very pleased to hear because that will put pressure on other countries, including our own, I might say, uh, to lift our own game. Um, I I get a question about is there a kind of a legal instrument that he can employ beyond an executive order that would lock that in? Uh, well, I, I I don't uh, I don't think it's going to I don't think you're going to see that. I think what he can lock in our um, uh, commitments in terms of, you know, he's the, 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 the uh, electric vehicle uh, uh, commitment, and he's got a, a significant uh, investment in research and development on technology uh, in here, and a, a range of things that he is committing to there. And he also wants to, um, he wants to build uh, some mandates into the into the law, but that would be separate from uh, the spending uh, in terms of reduction of emissions on the part of uh, uh, of industry. Um, but I think you know, I, I think you're going to see, um, you know, regulators who haven't been involved in the climate fight get involved in the climate fight uh, to. Uh, to try, for example, in the financial industry, uh, the regulators in the financial industry to compel uh, corporations to uh, to factor uh, climate risk into uh, their calculation. I know you come out of the finance world, so you're familiar with all of this. But uh, you know, so uh, pricing that into everything will be, I think, something that they'll try and do. So I think he's going to use all the levers he can. Be hard. Uh, I think it'd be hard to get the United States Senate uh, to uh, to codify uh, that number. Um, I think it's through his actions that he's going to try and uh, set set that goal in motion. I mean, one of one of the skepticisms I have of some of the countries that have made these commitments is that they don't then back it up with action. So, you know, the, the old adage, actions speak louder than words. I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that that's important. Um, on that thing of climate-related risks, we have actually just introduced legislation to uh, bring around mandatory reporting of climate-related risks for large financial institutions and listed companies and, and so on. And, and so I was quite pleased to hear that uh, the U.S. was considering going down the same route because yeah. it, you know, you can feel a little overexposed when you go first on something. Yeah, like that. I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I don't have any inside information, but I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, to, to hear from the Treasury Secretary on that in the next few days. Um, right. You know, so I, I do think they're going to send uh, signals about that. I mean, the one thing that I know, just talking to uh, 
friends across the administration is that there there truly is a, a uh, an all administration kind of approach to this every every agency is being asked to look at those places where they touch on this issue uh, to see what uh, authorities they have and what uh, steps they can take and uh, you know uh, from it, it looks like a very aggressive um, a very aggressive approach. And, you know, I think there's a real seriousness to it. That is, uh, you know, I thought we were very committed 10 years ago, but we were in the middle of a, um, uh, of an, uh, you know, the worst financial and economic crisis since the Great Depression, which made um, so, some of the things that we wanted to do more difficult to do. Um, you know, I, I, I so see more action. So that wasn't a patch on the one that we've got at the moment. It what? It, there, I mean, that was. I mean, the GFC wasn't a patch on what's happening now. Uh, well, you you mean in terms of of the crisis that was propagated by COVID, or I, I'm not getting. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, there's there's no doubt, but the the um, the difference is that I think that we also know the answer to that. Problem. We know that if we get the virus under control, there's a lot of pent up economic energy. And already you've seen, uh, and, and partly because of the tremendous amount of stimulus that has been inserted, including the last uh, $1.9 trillion by Biden, uh, you're seeing the economy here. You know, we had 14% unemployment. I think it's down to six now. Uh, the, obviously, the markets have been robust all along. Um, housing is coming back. And you get a sense that, you know, as we tr- as we get our arms around this virus, that uh, you're going to see a lot of economic activity. That is, by the way, a mixed bag when it comes to climate, because, uh, you know, COVID, for all of the horrors that it's brought, it, it also I, I was out in Arizona uh, for much of the of this um, siege. And um, it was striking to me, there are mountains in the distance from where I stay there, where I live there. And um, it struck my wife and I how, uh, and me how, how much clearer the mountains were. It's like, where's that haze? We, and we realized very quickly that there's not a lot of traffic. Uh, and that's made a huge difference. And as you know, uh, you know globally and certainly in the U.S., uh, emissions were down as a result of the lack of activity. Uh, and I do think that cha- there are reasons to believe that some of that has stickiness and we can, you know, that that will help. But obviously we're going to resume a lot. Of, we've already begun to resume a lot of that economic activity and a lot of that traffic and travel. And uh, so, you know, that was a a bonus from a climate standpoint, even as it was a disaster from other standpoints. I had a lot of journalists asking me during the lockdown, you know, is this a good thing? And I said, well, you know, at, at one level, yes, it's it's good to reduce our emissions, but uh, doing it via a global pandemic is yes. not the sustainable way uh, <laughs> exactly. of, of, of doing it. Yeah. Um, I, can, can I just ask you, you know, before when I was asking you about, I was sort of pressing about, you know, can we lock this stuff in? Can we have any assurance that, you know, it'll stick beyond changes? Again, that was a self-interested question because, we, you know, 
you know, New Zealand is obviously also a democracy. We have our own changes of government and there has been a bit of a history in the climate policy space of when there's a change of government, there's a change of direction. And that really calls them the investment markets as well, because people are worried about, you know, not only am I not going to invest in the green economy, because I, I can't trust that that's necessarily going to stick. I'm also not going to invest in the, um, uh, the kind of fossil fuel economy, uh, because I don't know that that's going to stick either. And so we, we passed a, a law called the Zero Carbon Act in our last term in government. Uh, and we were under a lot of pressure, both from industry, but also from the environmental movement to ensure that we had bipartisan support for that uh, because people wanted to know that when the next time there is a change of government and that'll either happen in you know, two and a half years or it'll happen in five and a half years, though they, it will inevitably happen, um, that there'll be you know, some, some consistency there. Um, and at the same time, there are a number of compromises we had to make, which I'm not really delighted about uh, in order to get that bipartisan support. And I, I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote uh, in your book, mm -hmm. Believer, uh, My 40 Years in Politics. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll read it to you. Sure. You said that, that you admired President Obama for his determination to defy the small poll-driven politics of our day to tackle big things. However, the gap between the singular focus of the campaign and his varied and ambitious agenda afterward undoubtedly sapped some of his political strength, leaving Americans wondering if he was truly focused on their concerns. And, and I wonder if you uh, have any views about how we maintain a singular focus uh, on climate change, um, which is a slow-moving, well, now actually quite fast-moving, but a sort of a distributed, uh, not immediately apparent threat versus the kind of clear and present dangers of COVID, you know, the infrastructure crisis, you know, issues in um, health and inequality and and kind of the various other things that, that yeah. any government has to face. Yeah. And I think and I think the answer is um, you you can't. Uh, but what you have, because I think that um, the the virus um, and the uh, attendant economic uh, dislocations it created uh, and inequality, which uh, is 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 pretty apparent, um, those things are the things that people are talking about around their kitchen tables, and um, and so the I think the real and and yes the 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 um, uh, you know the faster pace of of disasters uh, may. Be more in their consciousness, but those are the, the their fundamental day to day uh, challenges are what they're thinking about, and the question is, can you merge these things and take advantage of this moment? You know, the fact that um, uh, that uh, Biden has included so much uh, relative to the climate uh, challenge in his infrastructure package, for example, it, it reflects the. The merging of the of the crisis with long term goals, um, and you know, I'm not sure in another time he'd be in a position to push the kind of package that he's pushing now, and so that that is one thing. The other thing is that part of his focus in that package is dealing with uh, uh, inequality, and particular, you know, so a lot of the climate related infrastructure work. 
is also pegged for uh, underserved communities, communities in need. Uh, and, you know, in that way, uh, you're kind of merging a, a number of different goals. Um, you know, I think to try and focus um, to try and focus on the climate crisis, uh, you know, sort of uniquely uh, at a time when we have these other very obvious challenges would be a political disaster. And, uh, you know, this is a hard one. I said to you earlier, um, you know, we're watching a slow rolling disaster that could destroy the planet. And it has all kinds of implications for us. I mean, we spend tens and tens of billions of dollars on natural disaster remediation, uh, much more than we had to in the past because of climate change. If you read the national security kind of analysis that the military does every couple of years, their survey, um, they routinely list uh, climate change as one of the top national security challenges we have because of all of the dislocation around the planet uh, that it causes and and uh, migration and, uh, uh, you know, uh, poverty and breeding grounds for terrorism. And, you know, there are so many reasons why cl climate should be a, a prominent, prominent focus uh, of our administration, frankly, every global, every administration in the, in the world. But um, it is not the conversation that people are having around their kitchen tables. And as you know, uh, in democracies, when you're running for office, if you're not addressing those things that are happening, that they're talking about around their kitchen tables, if you're not addressing their day-to-day -day concerns, and that isn't, in their minds, your principal focus, uh, you're not going to be in a position to make change much for much uh, longer because you're going to be beaten. I wonder if, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about hindsight. Um, I, I coincidentally was in Philadelphia uh, on election night, the US election night in 2008. Um, and it was quite a party, yeah. <laughs> particularly in Philadelphia, which was a We had a good one in Chicago state. too. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed that one. Yeah, that was a great um, one. But it was, it was pretty big in, in Philly. But we, um, you know, the, there was the, the, the kind of banner of hope. You know, that was the kind of the, the, the headline. Uh, and, um, you know, like you said, the, that administration came in, your administration came in, you were in that White House, came in at a time when you're in the middle of the GFC. Coincidentally, there was a pandemic on uh, as well, um, uh, although obviously uh, not a patch on uh, COVID. Yeah, um, that came a little bit later but, in the spring, but yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, but yeah, we also uh, well, were, we were engaged I've, in two raging wars at the time too that had 180,000 well. troops in harm's way so yeah we had we had quite a full plate yeah i i wondered um about you know what lessons you've you learned going into the white house uh you know f facing that very full plate with that kind of message around hope um because one of the things that you said recently about President Biden was that you, this was, I think, in a CNN interview that you did, you said you, you um, thought he should have leaned more into the hope uh, and less into the empathy. Um, 
in in I was just contrasting that with the experience of your administration, your time in the White House uh, with President Obama, because you know I think you know even he talks about the sense of disappointment that that agenda got yeah. very mired down. Yeah. Well, let me say a few things about that. First of all, I remember driving with him uh, in. Uh, 2008, we were driving up to a rally. There were 100,000 people waiting for him. And, you know, all with signs up saying hope, change, uh, you know. Um, and, uh, and you know, he, the, the country wasn't yet, they were beginning to feel the effects of it, but the full scope of the economic crisis we were, uh, we had entered was not clear and but it was clear to us that it was bad, and um, you know I remember him uh, turning to me and saying, you know, uh, there's no way we can fully meet their expectations. I mean, there's you know not with what we're headed into, and um, so you know we 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 were sober uh, about that. I think that he felt uh, an urgency to get as much done as quickly as he could get done, in part because. Uh, given the situation we were in, there was absolutely no expectation that we could hang on to the Congress in the two years after he got elected, so um, or very little. And so I think he, he knew that he had a window. And so he did a lot of things. I mean, there was a, you know, I'm, I'm proud of him for taking on the health care issue. It's a travesty that we uh, have uh, 30 uh, million people uninsured and that we had such a uh, you know, we, we pay more for health care in this country and our outcomes are less good than uh, many, many other countries. Um, and so I was happy. I was proud of him for taking it on. But as a political advisor, I mean, I told him there's great risk associated with this. And, um, you know, he wanted to do as many things as he could. And in fact, uh, offered a cap and trade bill uh, in the Congress to try and deal with cl climate change in the midst of this. And I very much, James, remember, you know, he, we pushed this through the House. It was a hard, hard fight. Uh, we asked a lot of people to take a tough vote on it. Uh, and uh, but we were trying to get health care through the Senate and a few other things. And I remember the Senate leader, his name was Harry Reid, called me and he said, you know, uh, this cap and trade bill, um, he, he said, you know, the, the pipeline here, we can only get so many things through. They, they're a procedural thing, blah, 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 this and that. He said, so bottom line, we're not going to be able to take this up. And I said, before I could say anything, he said, would you tell the president? And he just hung up. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, so, um, look, I think Biden, the lesson that Biden learned uh, and his team learned, and many of them were with us then, was – to uh, keep a very sharp focus on the immediate challenges, uh, in this case, uh, the economic, the the uh, the virus and the economic uh, problems that it engendered, and um, they've been very disciplined about it. It's very hard to do. Uh, you know, I don't know how you experience it in your government, but in our uh, politics, if you're the president. There, you know, you're like driving a high performance race car every day uh, when it comes to message. And there are a million ways to kind of be, you know, skid off the course because every day there are provocations and issues and problems and so on. It takes a lot of discipline to keep the focus 
uh, on the things you want to keep the focus on and you need to keep the focus on. I think that is one of the things that Biden has done very, very well. So what what did you mean when you said you thought he should lean more into hope? Um. I don't. I would have to hear the context of in in which I said that and what I was reacting to. Empathy is Biden's superpower, and uh, it was particularly important. It's been a particularly important at a time when five hundred sixty thousand, more than five hundred sixty thousand lives of Americans uh, have been claimed by COVID, uh, and especially in the post-Trump era, because Trump was so consumed uh, by himself that he had no room for empathy. He was the least empathetic president we've ever had uh, at a time when we needed the most empathetic president. Well, now we have the most empathetic president. So I don't begrudge him his empathy at all. Um, I just think that, you know, you always have to be selling. um, And I think he is doing this now. So I don't know the context of what he said, what, when I said that, but, you know, you want to sell people constantly on uh, the better day around the corner and the things you're doing to get us there. And um, I think they've actually done a very good job on it. So I don't know why I said that idiotic thing. I can't explain it. <laughs> I um, I what you know. I mean, the reason I'm asking you about this is one of the things that pops up a lot in in the climate change debate is is fundamentally about hope versus fear. Uh, and you know, most of the news that's coming out about climate change is bad news. Uh, you know, the world's yes. emissions are going up. Half of all greenhouse gas emissions that have ever been emitted have happened since 1990, which is the year that we collectively decided they should start going down. You know, it's just it's just this kind of litany of of, of bad news. And yeah. we, uh, you know, we need to be truthful about that. You know, we can't we don't want to shy away from it. But also, you know, humans kind of just want to go and I think I said before bury their heads under the duvet. You know, in the face of that, and so. You know, we need to be talking up the where where there is progress as well. But the problem there is, you know, it sort of feels like sometimes that we're kind of glossing over the bad and talk and over over talking the good. And and I just wonder where you fall on yeah. that debate. Well, look, my instinct is, um, and I grapple with this issue, but at a different time. Um, my my instinct is that um, the the. The magnitude of the challenge and the crisis uh, should be conveyed because people need to understand why we have to mobilize. Uh, the good news is we we live in a time when we actually have the tools with which to fight back. We, you know, in another time, we wouldn't have the techno- technological capacities that we have now. We we ha- we are the masters of our own fate here. And we need to um, we need to excite and enlist people in a great global mobilization and and individually in great national mobilizations, even national competitions. I, I think one of the things that uh, is important to sell here in the U.S. is that there's going to be a boatload of money to be made on these environmental technologies, and either the Chinese are going to dominate that market or America is going to dominate that market. Uh, you know, I, I mean, and all of these, you know, in my old in my old days, I would be testing all of these things, and I'm sure they are testing all of these things. But I think, you know, my my view of politics, James, was always when messaging was always, uh, you know, start from the truth and work from there. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that you want to tell uh, as much truth as, as people are willing to tolerate. But I also think the truth is there is a trem- we have a tremendous capacity uh, to alter the, the, our, the course of history and take our fate in our hands here. And uh, in no other time in our history would we be so well positioned to do that. Um, so we just need to ins- excite and enlist people in that mission. Uh, and so I think you have to do both. I don't think you should be Pollyannish about the threat. I mean, the glaciers are melting, the oceans are rising, the California is burning. Uh, you know, uh, our states are getting hit by hurricanes. Uh, uh, you know, we're spending, as I said earlier, much tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars after the fact, after the loss of property and life. Uh, You know, the need is obvious. um, And even if people are reluctant, um, you know, I think you have a responsibility. Uh, You know, I I got to tell you this story. I was on on Morning Joe years ago, which is a show here, very well-watched cable TV show. And the host, a former Republican congressman, Obama was speaking and he was going to speak about a climate change. And, he, and uh, the guy said, hey, we just have a new Wall Street Journal NBC poll and climate was sixth on the list of people's concerns. Why is he talking so much about that? And I had just had my new uh, my first grandchild and I thought to myself, you know, what would I say from the grave to my grandchild who lives in a world that is completely degraded, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, because we didn't act? What would I say when she said, why didn't you do anything? Would I say, well, we would have, but the Wall Street Journal NBC poll only said this was the sixth biggest concern. So we didn't, we just decided not to do anything about it. Um, so, you know, um, I think I respect that politicians need to get reelected in order to do anything. And so they have to be mindful of where public attitudes are and they have to some in some ways link up to public attitudes. This is an issue on which uh, you also have to lead uh, and just be very truthful, uh, if not for your reelection chances, then for your conscience. Uh, because there'll become there'll be a day of reckoning if we don't act, and that day of reckoning is bearing down on us. Uh, and uh, you know, so people need to think about what they're going to tell their children about why we didn't do what what was plainly and manifestly necessary. David, you are one of the most storied political campaign managers. Uh, you know, as a result of um, the the extraordinarily unlikely uh, win of of getting America's first black president elected um, against you know significant odds, and being a part of that White House uh, for at least that first term. When you when you look at you know what you've just been saying around climate change you know if you were to approach what we need to do around the world right not just in the US or in New Zealand or in China but you know collectively how would you approach that as a campaign like you know with with what you know with your expertise in the domain of political management and campaigns how, how, how do we win this one 
Well, you know, first of all, um, you know, we live in a time of rising nationalism. And, uh, you know, one question is, we, we have to do this globally because we can't solve it any other way. And I, uh, you know, applaud the president for doing what he's doing, uh, what everyone is doing uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, encourage each other to reach uh, goals. But um, as a political matter, um, you know, I think these campaigns probably need to be unique to each venue. Uh, and, the, you know, some of the arguments may be similar. Uh, but, um, but, um, I, 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 you know, I, I, am sorry to say this, but I'm not sure that do, let's do this for the world, uh, is going to sell as much as we got to do this for New Zealand. We've got to do this for America. We've got to do this for American kids. We've got to do this for New Zealanders. And, uh, we have to do this for Chinese kids, um, you know, uh, and for, uh, and ultimately, you know, I mean, there are a whole litany of reasons we could list about the, the, the long term impact on our economy and our security on, um, you know, but my my intuition, again, not having researched the this is that we need individual campaign. We need global action and 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 national campaigns is what we need. Uh, and um, each venue needs, each country needs to focus on those arguments uh, that are most resonant in their country. We can learn from each other. Um, as you know, you and I spoke about the concerns of minors in your country and in our country. Uh, but um, I think each country has to design the campaign that works best for them with a focus on, you know, that that particular country. I know, look, I think there's a compelling reason why we need to contribute to help. Um, uh, we, wealthier countries need to contribute to help, uh, uh, you know, developing countries, particularly poor countries, to meet their climate needs. And, uh, but I can tell you that is a very divisive concept in American politics. I mean, you sit with particularly the Trump supporters, but not, uh, probably some who aren't. And you say, well, how much, you know, and they'll say, one of the problems is we waste a lot of money. Well, what do we waste money on? Foreign aid. Well, how much do we spend on foreign aid? Oh, 25% of our budget. It's less than one. And that 1% is an extraordinary investment in our security uh, and our prosperity, um, you know, because the problems that go unmet in these countries uh, ultimately become our problems too. So, um, but, so you have to have that consciousness when you're planning these campaigns. You know, uh, you can't make it about some distant place or the globe. I think you have to make it about national interest and why this is important for our national interest and what the benefits are, not just the disaster that's averted, but the benefits that might accrue by being part of this uh, effort to uh, to turn this back. I will say, James, and I said it before, um, you know, we also need a good answer to that repost about uh, China and other big polluters who aren't doing their bit. So I'm eager to see if the Chinese participate in this summit 
and if they come to the table with pledges that are that are you know actionable and believable, um, you know I do have a concern that they're they are they have such a focus on economic growth in the in the twenties that uh, by the time they turn to this issue at the end of the decade that it'll be too late. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what other countries do is important, uh, but I think we need national campaigns. Can I ask you for those of you who, uh, sorry, the, the people who are who are listening to this, uh, you know, they, they know the story of the Obama campaign and the, the administration, the eight years of the administration. What are you doing with yourself these days? Well, I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, besides uh, random podcast shows with kind of politicians from the South Pacific. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually what is a big specialty of mine. I love doing that. Um, I am, um, uh, I do a number of things. I'm a, a, I'm a, a, a senior political commentator on CNN. Uh, I am the director of, and the founder of, of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, trying to encourage the next generation of leaders to stand up and uh, the, the James Shaws of the future uh, to stand up and solve some of these big problems. And it's really, you talk about hope, that's a very hopeful job. Every time I'm with these young people, I think, boy, they have the energy and the ideas and the fearlessness uh, to attack some of these very complex problems uh, that we face. I do a couple of podcasts of my own, one called The Axe Files. Uh, and I've got a standing in invitation out to your prime minister to uh, participate on that. I, I hope at the next cabinet meeting you encourage her to do so on my behalf uh, because I find her to be a fascinating figure. Uh, and... Um, I do one called Hacks on Tap, which is a podcast I do with another old political hack, as we call ourselves from the Republican side, uh, Mike Murphy, and talk about, from a strategic standpoint, what's going on in our politics. And then I speak and uh, try. I've got a couple of causes I'm very close to. One is uh, uh, epilepsy uh, research, because I have a child with epilepsy, and one is... Uh, um, suicide prevention because I lost my dad to suicide. So, you know, I'm keeping busy. I'm pleased to hear it. I, I you know, you talked about young people uh, and I wonder if we could yes. close. I wanted to read you back something again from your book, Believer, yeah. 40 Years in Politics. You said, I spend a lot of time with young people now. They want to have an impact, but they're not sure that politics is a viable path on which to do that. Congress is going to meet with you or without you, I tell them. Don't turn away in disgust and leave those decisions to someone else. You don't like politics today? Well, grab the wheel of history and steer us to a better place. Run for office. Be a strategist or a policy aide. Work for a government agency or a non-profit. Become a thoughtful, probing journalist. Get in the arena. Help shape the world in which you're going to live. At a minimum, be the engaged citizen that a healthy democracy demands. Mm -hmm. What would your message to young people today who are fighting for climate action be? Well, look, I, well, let me just say, first of all, you know, you think of Greta Thunberg, who's uh, still a teenager uh, and the impact that that she has had. I, I, I think that um, the uh, 
the most important stakeholders on this issue are young people. And they should make, because they're going to live with the consequences of our action or inaction. And they ought to make their voices heard loud and clear uh, in the councils of government, in the streets, um, and uh, uh, in, in uh, you know, every constructive way they can think to, um, to underscore the, the urgency uh, of this Um I actually think they can help move uh, move people on this issue. Um, but this is one that will define their future. Uh, and a failure to act will immeasurably, uh, uh, you know, and negatively affect their, uh, their, their prospects and the prospects of their countries, their communities. So, you know, I, I hope that every young person who is uh, within our Ear, with an earshot of us, will um, will make this a fundamental mission, um, and you know, this is literally a case where the the lives you save may be your own, and the the the, the and you can enhance our future or um, or not. And frankly, you know, the 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 older folks who control the levers of power need a kick in the butt on this. And uh, young people have the energy and the earnestness to provide that. David Exrod, thank you so much for joining me on what comes after, what comes next. Uh, really appreciate your time uh, and the generosity of spirit that you've uh, shown in this. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, James. Good luck to you. I hope maybe to visit someday. And if I do, I will uh, look you up. New Zealand holds great interest for me. 